But with that said, we are talking through in this series, again, different angles of, of our mental health. And today I'm talking about, talking about a, a topic um, that I've never spoken before. Uh, it is the topic of trauma. Uh, now, I know some of you right now are gathering your things to leave the room. Now, um, some of you are turning off the stream. Please don't. Uh, but, but trauma is something that is actually, we, we, we've all experienced. Um, and I'm going to give some clarity to that, probably to some degree. Uh, trauma is defined in the Oxford Dictionary as a deeply uh, distressing or disturbing experience. And psychologists differentiate between what they call big T trauma and little t trauma. Now, if you're like me, for years, I often immediately thought of big T trauma, which are the things we all could think of. And some of you have experienced some big T trauma. Uh, those are things such as if you uh, serve in our armed forces and you've uh, been um, deployed uh, in war zones. And I want to say thank you for your service to all of our uh, men and women who serve in our U.S. military. We can give it up for them. <clears throat> um, and uh, so, so some of you have experienced what they call big T trauma. Uh, for for m- many of us, some of us have experienced that. And then what, what psychologists call little T trauma is oftentimes not thought of as trauma. Um, also, what they have now found in trauma research is that trauma is actually um, what they say is subjective, meaning this, what's traumatic for you may not be traumatic for me, and what's traumatic for me may not be traumatic for you. So that's why you can have two people experience the same thing but have a different response. Um, and little t traumas can be things such as the loss of a loved one. It can be the end of a relationship, a loss of a relationship. Um, it can be unexpected financial stress. Uh, it can be legal troubles. It can be your kid having academic issues. It can be walking through a divorce. Um, it can be being in a home where there's been divorce or where someone has struggled with a mental illness. Or uh, These are what they call, again, little t traumas, which a lot of times we may not think of as being traumatic. I know I didn't for much of my life. Um, it can also be being in a, a work environment that's maybe some describe as toxic or unhealthy or very stressful. Um, if you're in school or maybe you experience this in school, it can be bullying or some form of harassment. It can be traumatic. And what can happen is, and the concerning part with little t traumas is they, they can build up over time. And what happens over the course of time is that a number of little t traumas can, can, can re- result in significant emotional distress. And we may not think of them as trauma. We may not think that they need to be treated, but they, but they in actuality need to. Now, all of us probably to some degree have experienced our own form of individual trauma. And I'm not going to sit up here and act like I understand fully everything you've walked through um, but I do know this, we've also all came through what is known as a collective trauma, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. The Washington Post just last, uh, two months ago, three months ago rather, um, published an article on this, and they said that this is a quote from the Washington Post, the pandemic has caused nearly two years of collective trauma, and many people are near a breaking point. Um, I hope that frees some people up today. <laughs> If anything, I hope you feel free this morning, that it's okay if you felt the weight. It's okay if you felt that, man, these past two years, it feels like a lot has come at us. Uh, and that's not, not even those things that are not pandemic related, just everything in the last two years. The Atlantic Magazine, in the same month, published an article on the same topic, the collective trauma of the COVID-19 pandemic. This is, this is from them. They said, it has been a singular disaster 
a recurring series of traumatic events that have eroded the very social trust and connections that allow communities to recover from catastrophes. Here's what psychologists are saying. Here's what's been so destructive of the COVID-19 pandemic. One of the things in trauma research that is incredibly healing is community. And we didn't have it for a portion of the pandemic. So here we are walking through collective trauma without this sense of belonging and, and, and true solidarity. And they said that's what's perhaps been the most destructive to our, to our souls in this pandemic. Again, this is that same article. They say medical traumas were compounded by social stressors, including unemployment, isolation, the rigors of full-time parenting without childcare. Come on, parents, where are you at? Right? Like working full-time as a parent and being full-time childcare, traumatic. <laughs> right? It's kind of funny, but it's true, right? Like you're not, we're not designed for that. <laughs> Your soul's not designed to do two full-time things at the same time. So I, here's my, my one, I want us to just acknowledge we've all been through trauma. We've all experienced it. And it's having an effect on us, whether or not we fully see it or not, to some degree. This is not to mention, you know, a year of lost opportunities, birthdays missed, weddings canceled. We weren't able to gather as a church for 13 months uh, indoors during that pandemic. In fact, can I say pastorally? There was two primary reasons we came back to in person last April. Number one, the church in the Greek in the New Testament is called the Ecclesia, which literally means to assemble together. So this is spiritual and biblical. But number two, studies show this, that there's something about, I thank God for online church, but there's something about face-to-face contact and physical touch that what it does for your soul cannot be replicated via a screen. It cannot. So I love online, but there's something our soul needs to have somebody else who hugs us. Somebody else who we can see, we can, we can, so part of the reason we came back last April was because we wanted to care for the mental health of our community. Yes, take physical precautions, but we got to care for our souls. We are spirit, soul, and body, 1 Thessalonians 5. And just, if, if, just to be clear, God is Lord over all of them. <laughs> he doesn't just care about your spirit or your body, he cares about your soul. Here's about your soul. And we have been under really an onslaught against our soul over the past several years. And trauma, when left unchecked, the Center for Substance Abuse Treatment, they've shown that trauma, left unchecked, leads to persistent fatigue, sleep issues, anxiety, depression. It can even lead to cardiovascular issues. They found some research that walking through trauma, left unchecked, left untreated. So here's all that to say. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Come on. We're going to pray now, all right? Um, but here's some encouraging parts. We're going to look at, a, at, a, at a, a person in Scripture who experienced trauma. And here's why I love the Scriptures. I, I love the Bible. And, and I really, man, I, I want you to love the Bible because the Bible is so relevant. And sometimes if you grew up in church, we can sometimes um, unintentionally, and maybe teachings we've heard can sugarcoat certain stories. But I want to look at the, at the life of Joseph, Joseph was a man who experienced repeated traumas. If you are new to the church and to Bible, let me give you context. Um, Joseph, at a young age, uh, he was his father's favorite. Side note, if you have children, do not publicly call someone your favorite, okay? I was going to help out. If you have a favorite, just don't tell anyone, all right? 
His father was like, you're my favorite. <laughs> and uh, his brothers weren't crazy about that. So um, they sold him into slavery. That's traumatic, right? Like your siblings sell you to slave traders. Traumatic. He was enslaved in Potiphar's house. Traumatic. Then Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him of assault. He's thrown into prison. Traumatic. <laughs> and then he's in prison, and the cupbearer to, to Pharaoh says, man, I'm going to go tell the Pharaoh about what you did for me. And then two years later, there's a delay. He doesn't exactly immediately tell Pharaoh about Joseph, only when he's in a pinch. So again, an unfulfilled promise. Traumatic. Here is a man over the course of 13 years. Trauma, 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 trauma. So I, I want to sort of remove the sugarcoat from that story, maybe if it was sugarcoated in your Sunday school, maybe classroom when you grew up. When Joseph went through it. And there's some things we can glean from Joseph's life on how we can truly not just survive trauma, but thrive through trauma. So I'm going to dive into a story today, but before we do, um, let's pray. And, um, and when we pray, here's what I also want to pray for. Um, you have probably been watching the news uh, or your social media feeds this week about all that's happening in Ukraine. And uh, I want you to know that we as a church uh, are going to pray for Ukraine, uh, pray for the people of Ukraine, uh, pray for the church in Ukraine. Actually, I actually have friends of mine um, who they are in Odessa, and uh, I actually was communicating with him this week. And uh, he is there. Um, he used, they used to live in this area. They moved there. She is from Ukraine. They moved back to missionaries. They serve with a local church there. And uh, they are, they're full of faith. Uh, and I said, what's the, what's the number one thing you need right now? And he said, prayer. How many of you know the Bible says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective? So we're going to pray for him. Uh, we also believe in action here at Catalyst. So we have given to Convoy of Hope, which is a, a faith-based disaster relief organization. They are actually on boots on the ground in Ukraine already, providing food, water, and shelter to people who are in need. Uh, we believe in both. Can we pray, kind of bring our faith together and pray for our brothers and sisters uh, in Ukraine this morning? So, Father, uh, God, we just lift up those who are in Ukraine today, Father. Those who are, there may be some who even woke up to the sound of, of gunfire uh, or the dropping of bombs, God. We just pray right now for peace and protection over the people in Ukraine. Uh, Father, I even just specifically think of those young children, God, the most vulnerable population, God. Uh, Lord, I pray for, um, Lord, as well, just the courage in the church of Ukraine. Uh, Father, Lord, we've heard so many just stories of um, heroic behavior of, of so many over there, um, not just standing uh, for, their, uh, for their own rights, God, but also as a church standing uh, in Jesus' name. So, Father, we just pray as well for them. And, God, we just pray you bring peace to that land, protection over those people. Father, I pray today as we open your word that you would speak to us. Uh, God, we thank you that your word is eternal. Uh, God, that it will never return empty. It will always accomplish what it sets out to accomplish. So we posture our hearts and our minds to just receive from you today. It's in the name of Jesus. Amen. Genesis 37, verse 23. Um, this is the beginning of Joseph's story. It says, when Joseph uh, came to his brothers... They stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. They took him and threw him into a cistern. 
the cistern was empty, had no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. The camels were loaded with spices and myrrh. They were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. So when the Midianite merchants came by, the brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Which I picked this up. There's three things that we see. We're going to cover about eight different chapters in a short amount of time of Joseph's life uh, and some things that he did, I think, to really thrive in the midst of trauma. And here's the first one. Uh, i taking notes. And that is uh, that we need to stay close to God. And we see that in Joseph's life. And in verse 2 of 39, it says, As the Lord was with Joseph, so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. When his master saw the Lord... Uh, was with him, and the Lord gave him success in everything he did. Some, one phrase that you see repeatedly in Joseph's life is the Lord was with him. When he was in Potiphar's house, the Lord was with him. When he was in prison, the Lord was with him. Overwhelmingly, it was clear that, that Joseph was faithful to God in the midst of these traumatic situations. And can I tell you, in the midst of, to, to truly live out, I think, on, your, on a soul level and a spiritual level, for you to thrive through traumatic situations, we need to stay close to God. The scriptures say that every other kingdom of this world will be shaken, and we're seeing that. Uh, we've seen that over the past several years. But the kingdom of God will never be shaken. You know, one of the ways that we stay close to God is through his word. These are the words of Jesus. He said this in, in John chapter 8, verse 32. He said, there is a truth, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It was past week where I was at a park uh, with our, our kids, and uh, it was on Monday, and there was, you know, probably several hundred kids at this park, and um, if you go to a park with that many kids, about every few minutes you'll hear a kid crying. A kid fell off the swing or off the slide or their brother pushed him over and these physical trauma. And what do you see? Come on, when a kid has any kind of physical trauma, they go running for a parent, right? Let's be honest. Typically, mom, right? <laughs> come on. Bless your mothers. Mother's Day is coming up. Come on, somebody. Let's just turn May into Mother's Month, all right? Are you all good with that? Come on. Moms deserve it, right? I even tried my own kids. Like, hey, like this morning, I brought my kids into church this morning. I drove them in, and they were like, the first thing we pull in, they're like, where's mom? I'm like, what about dad? Like, dad got you up this Dad fed you this morning, but where's mom? So I can't win. Um, so bless moms. Uh, but in the same way a child runs to their parent when in need, we need to run to our heavenly father when we face trauma. There's a truth that sets us free. And here's the reality. When you go through trauma, when you face trauma, you will be tempted to believe lies about yourself, about God, about others. For example, you can be tempted to believe the lie that somehow I deserved what happened to me. Or somehow I'm less valuable because of what he did to me or what she did to me or what happened to me. Or we can believe lies about God that somehow God is not good because of what happened. Or we can believe lies about other people. Like, I cannot trust anyone because of what happened to me. Please hear this. There's no condemnation. If you believed a lie, it's understandable. I've been there. I, I have. But listen, I, I want you to hear this. That's why it's so important that we hold on to a truth that will set us free. The word of God has stood the test of time, and it will stand the test of time into eternity. And it's the only truth that has the power to actually set 
you free. Now, me personally, I had in a relationship, a little T-trauma happened years ago. And personally, it messed with my own kind of self-worth, my kind of perception of myself. And do you want to know what helped to set me free? Do you want to know what actually reinstilled a confidence, actually instilled a confidence I had never had before? It was Psalms 139.14. You know what it says? It's David penning this, that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, O God, I know them full well. So you know what I did after walking through a little tea trauma? I would look at myself in the mirror and I would say, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, that I am marvelous in God's sight. You are wonderful in God's sight. And sometimes trauma, the enemy will sell you a lie that somehow you are less than because of what happened to you. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. And you grab hold of a truth. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So much so when I met my wife, Christina, she thought I was this incredibly confident man. I said, no, I was incredibly good looking, but I wasn't. (laughs) I mean, truth is truth, you know. But my confidence came from God. Can I tell you, church, when you go through trauma, you need to hold on to the truth that can never change. The truth of the word of God. You got to hold on to the truth. Then also, you need to cast your cares on God. Christina hit this last week on her message on anxiety. I love this lamentation scripture, 219. It says this, arise, cry out in the night as the watches of the night begin. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Let me ask you this. When's the last time you poured out your heart to God? You know, I I was thinking of this, and sometimes, not to paint broad strokes. I don't like to paint broad strokes, but sometimes as, as men, we can be less prone to be as honest about our emotions with each other, with God. Um, but I thought of, you know, King David. King David who cared a, killed a bear with his bare hands. King David who slain a giant. King David who led a military uh, men into battle. He also is the one who penned many of the Psalms, crying out and pouring out his heart to God. Perhaps it was his vulnerability before God that actually gave him the strength to stand before a giant. Can I, incur- can I ask you, like, have some time this week. Pour out your heart to God. And there was some research done uh, by, the, by the Contemporary uh, uh, Therapies Journal in 2019. And they, they, they studied this, this, this idea of what's called, it's a recommended treatment for those who are in trauma. It's called expressive writing. And expressive writing is essentially you journal uh, your feelings around a traumatic event. So you journal your feelings when you're dad passed away. You journal your feelings when the, when the divorce happened or you found out that your ex was unfaithful to you or you journal your feelings whenever, whatever it is that, that, that caused trauma to you. Journal your feelings over what happened over the past two years in the pandemic. And what they did was they did a study where they had um, 35% of those who experienced trauma had clinical depression um, per the criteria of the DSM-5 when they went into treatment. And then for six, uh, for six weeks, four days a week, they had, for 20 minutes, expressive writing. At the end of the six weeks, out of the 35% had a clinical depression, none of them no longer met the criteria for clinical depression. Listen, there's an emotional benefit for you being honest and journaling your emotions and your feelings. Can I add something to you? When you journal your feelings before God, let me free you up. God already knows how you feel, <laughs> right? Like, you can be honest with him. 
Like David himself was like, why are you downcast, oh my soul? Like read the Psalms, like David was honest. He already knows how you feel. So not only do you have the emotional benefit of getting free, as we see in the research when you have expressive writing, but when you write to God, the Bible says when you cast your cares upon God, he will sustain you. And for some of you, journal, journal your feelings this week to God. Let, let me, I, I did, true transparency, I did it this week. There were emotions that came out of me that I didn't even realize I had. From, from, from trauma years ago, years ago. Try it this week. It, it was powerful for me. Uh, express your feelings. Cast your cares upon God. Here's the last one we're staying close to God. Are you all still with me? Okay, seven of you are. It's cool. All right. Stay close to God's people. Paul wrote this in Galatians 6 to carry each other's burdens, and this way you fulfill the law of Christ. Now, the apostle Paul had a moral authority I think, to talk about any trauma. Here's why. Paul was beaten. He was left for dead just for believing that Jesus Christ is Lord. He was imprisoned just because he professed Jesus Christ is Lord. Probably most of you in this room watching online have not experienced that degree of trauma where because you profess Jesus, you have been imprisoned. Maybe some of you have. But Paul had experienced trauma. He says you gotta carry each other's burdens. And here's the application for some of you. For some of you, and I'm, I'm, I'm like you in this group. Uh, you've been trying to carry your burdens all by yourself <laughs> for years. And you need to have the vulnerability and the courage to let somebody else carry it for you. Bessel, Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote the book, it's a great book on trauma. Uh, it's not a faith-based one, but it's a, it's a great book on trauma called Your Body Keeps the Score. Um, he's a trauma expert. And he actually said one of the most beneficial things and healing things you can do when you've experienced trauma is to share your secrets. Do you know who came up with that idea? The Lord. <laughs> it's all over the Bible. Like, carry those burdens. Confess your sin. We say this right here, Catalyst. Take off the mask. Many of you are already in a community group. If you're not, join one today. I would encourage you to. Here's why. Because whether or not you realize that your soul needs someone that you can be brutally honest with. You need someone in your life that you can share secrets with. And I think personally for your own spiritual health, they should be a follower of Jesus heading in the same direction you are. So they can pray for you. They can support you. Because there's actually therapeutic benefit for you sharing your secrets. That trauma that happened to you. There may be some of you in this room, there is trauma, traumatic things happened to you. You have not told anyone. Can I tell you, again, the research is clear. There's profound healing in telling somebody else. I think there's spiritual benefits if you tell somebody else who actually is following after Christ. You know, in 2012, there was a, a study done in Israel. It was a seven-year, uh, it was a group of people in Israel, southern Israel. It was in the Social Science and Medicine Journal. Uh, they had experienced uh, gunfire for seven years, on, non nonstop gunfire in southern Israel. And they studied this group of people to, to, to understand or kind of see how they responded to being under constant trauma for seven years. This one small town, they found that only 1.5% of the people met the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. And the, the clinicians and the, and the researchers said, this is very odd. You would expect a much larger number of people who've been under a constant gunfire to have PTSD than who has. And here was the number one factor that they concluded from their research that led to their resiliency. You know what it was? It was belonging in a sense of community. That that was the protective factor. 
You need people in your life who know you. So when you join that group, when you join that Faith in Life course, when you join a serving team, get to know someone or a few people and have coffee with them. I'm going to be real practical. And be courageous enough and bold enough to say, can I tell you something I've never told someone else before? I've done it. It will feel awkward and very uncomfortable, especially if you are someone who has been living life for some period of time. But I'm telling you, it is perhaps the most healing thing you'll ever do in your life. If you tell somebody, here's what really happened to me when I was a child. Here's what happened to me in my last marriage. Here's what happened to me years ago at college. I'm telling you, I know it might be hard, but it's profoundly, profoundly healing. Just let somebody know. You know, we look at animals. Jesus in the scriptures referred to us as his followers as his sheep. Anybody else, let's just be honest, you ever like, come on, Jesus, for real, sheep? Like, couldn't you call this like stallions or lions or tigers? Like, you know what I mean? Sheep. But you know what's true about sheep? Sheep are most protected in herds. You know, the Bible says there's an enemy prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour your life. Do you know who he goes after? Sheep who's all by themselves. But when you're in community, when you're hurt, it develops a resiliency in the face of trauma. Uh, Bessel van der Kolk, again, the author of Your Body Keeps the Score, said this, being able to feel safe with other people, catch this, is probably the single most important aspect of mental health. Do you want to know why we emphasize community groups and getting connected and getting involved and saying that church isn't a service, which is not, it's a family? Do you want to know why? Because it is the most important thing to your spiritual and emotional health is to have these relationships. He goes on to say this, that safe connections are, are fundamental to meaningful and satisfying lives. So stay close to God and God's people. Here's number two, is guard your heart. Verse 10 of, of 39, uh, to give context, Joseph had been sold into slavery. He's now in Potiphar's house, uh, enslaved in Potiphar's house. And Joseph was known as a very uh, physically attractive man. And Potiphar's wife noticed it. And verse 10, it says this, that she spoke to Joseph day after day. He refused to go to bed with her and even be with her. She kept coming on to him, trying to get him to sleep with her, to the point where she, like, was grabbing him to be like, come to bed with me. Now, can we be real? Potter, or, or Joseph, he's, he's enslaved with no hope of getting free. Like, and the guy who's enslaved him, Joseph could have easily thought to himself, you know, I'm going to do this guy. I'm going to sleep with his wife. She wants me to anyway, Right? Like, he could have easily been made a poor decision. But like, you know what? It's been stressful. I was thrown in the cistern. I was sold to these Midianites. Now I'm in Potiphar's house. I've been stressed. And he could have easily said, you know what? I'm going to sleep with her. But Joseph continued to guard his heart from sin. The Bible says, guard your heart above all else. For out of it flow flows the issues of life, flow the springs of life. Joseph was guarding his heart. And here's what I know, and here's what research shows. When you are under distress, you are, mo you are, you are more prone to make a bad decision. Ha anybody ever made a bad decision when you're stressed out? Come on. You had that second dessert? Come on, you only have meant to have two scoops of ice cream, you ate the whole pint? You're like, come on. You're stressed, right? You don't eat a whole pint of ice cream on Tuesday morning. Come on, you do it Friday night, Right? Saturday night, why? Because you stress out after a whole day at work. You stress out after, after taking care of those kids all day, right? 
or you have that extra drink that you knew you went over the line, or you reach out to the unhealthy relationship for comfort. Because here's what's happening at a, at, a, at a neurochemical level. Now, some of you could explain this better, better than me. I only took two courses in neuroscience. Some of you know better than I do. But what I do know is this, is that your limbic system uh, is kind of your basic sy- system of your brain. And your, your front, your, compared to your prefrontal cortex, which is your decision-making area of your brain. So your limbic system fires quicker than your prefrontal cortex. In fact, at MIT, they actually found in 2017 that actually when you are under duress, um, it actually short-circuits your prefrontal cortex. Hence, you make bad decisions. Hence, do not make important decisions when you're stressed. Because <laughs> you are a bad decision-maker when you're stressed out. So what happens is, too, if something triggers a past trauma... Your limbic system fires before your prefrontal cortex even knows what's happening. That's why, and here I'm going to get real practical for you. In fact, Bessel van der Kolk even recommends this as a treatment for trauma. Is that, is that, and this is a way to prevent you from getting a bad decision or falling into sin. Is that your body has a built-up stress on the inside of it. And you may not even be fully aware of why. And one of the number one things they recommend when you've experienced trauma is to do some physical activity to relieve the stress. Work out, stretch, do deep breathing. That in and of itself will help to calm your limbic system and help to reset your body and release the stress in a healthy and appropriate way to guard against sin. You also need to guard against re-trauma. Let me explain this. Genesis 42, Joseph has his first interaction with his brothers. Now, when Joseph has his first interaction with his brothers in Genesis 42, he actually threatens them. In verse 14, he actually calls them spies. In fact, another, another part in that passage, he actually calls them strangers. Now, Joseph knew who they were. But I want you to catch this. It's important. Joseph, at this point, he was um, how many years? I think it was 15 years since the initial event when that moment happened. And Joseph gave them three different tests from Genesis 42 to 45. He tested his brothers on three different occasions. I'm not going to read through all of it, but here's what I want you to catch. Joseph had not yet fully trusted his brothers. I want you to hear this, that part of guarding your heart is guarding yourself from being re-traumatized. And here's what that means. You might need to distance yourself. You might need to leave that unhealthy workplace. You might need to end that unhealthy relationship. You might need to distance yourself from that uncle. You might need to distance yourself from some people. Because in the same way an athlete, if they get injured, they come off the field to get healing. Your soul needs some distance. And sometimes we can feel like, especially if it's family or somebody close or it's our job, we can feel like I need to stay in a certain environment. I need to stay with somebody. Sometimes the best thing you can do is to get distance. Because that's how your, your soul can begin to heal once again and not be re-traumatized and allow that listen forgiveness and we're going to speak to forgiveness forgiveness is a decision is an act of will that we we are called as followers of jesus to forgive every time all the time but listen forgiveness is not the same as trust you for forgive immediately but you can wait we're going to see in joseph's uh, situation 22 years before you fully trust someone again and that's okay. But we are called to forgive. So you got to guard your heart from re-trauma. You also have to guard your heart from offense. Proverbs, it says that it's to our glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 19, 11. 
That word glory literally means uh, to your honor. It's to your honor to be able to overlook offense. Here's what I'm not, I'm not saying that you should uh, brush aside offense. I'm not saying you should minimize what happened to you. I'm not saying you should forget about it. But I'm saying is you, let me say it this way. Offenses will happen. Jesus said trials will happen, tribulation will happen. Offenses will happen, but being offended is a choice. And here's what they found. In fact, John Hopkins did a study on this, that actually not forgiving and, and remaining offended, it actually has been tied to uh, coronary heart disease and other immune system dysfunctions. It's actually bad for your health. You know why? Because God created you to forgive. But listen, I, I, I'm, I'm sensitive. If you're there and you're like, I'm not sure if I'm ready to forgive. I'm not sure if I'm ready. I understand. But here's what also offense does relationally to you. Um, I have John. He's going to bring up a, a, a illustration for us. Give it up for John. Come on. Um, I have a fence here. Don't judge me. It's a dog fence. It's all I can find on Amazon. But here's what happens is that it, a fence left unchecked will become a fence around your heart. And here's what will happen. And listen, I, I speak this transparently because I was offended for several years of my life. So I, I, I know what this feels like. And what happens is, if you don't even realize it, when you are offended by someone in your life, you've actually built a fence around your heart. And you may have believed a lie that people cannot be trustworthy because they've hurt me before and they'll hurt me again. So here's what can happen is it actually keeps people at a distance. And we can wonder, why don't I have any healthy relationships? Why don't I have any have true real friendships? Why am I still lonely even though I'm trying? Why is my marriage not healthy? It's because you've allowed an offense to build a fence around your heart. So what do we have to do in those moments? Give it up one more time for John. Thank you so much is we have, to, we have to do what the modern-day philosopher, Calvin Brodus, i.e. Snoop Dogg, says. You have to drop it like it's hot. Some of you know who Calvin Brodus is. Some of you don't. Now you do. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, the Super Bowl halftime show was my generation, so... Here's what Jesus said. It's a good transition, right? Snoop Dogg to Jesus, you know. A little insight in my brain. There you go. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Now, listen, if you're Peter, you're thinking pretty high of yourself. Here's why. Because rabbis taught you forgive someone three times. After the third time, I forgive you no more. So Jesus is like, hey, hey, Matthew. Hey, hey, John, watch this. Jesus is going to love this. I'm going to be his new favorite disciple. Hey, Jesus, I'll forgive him up to seven times. High five. And Jesus is like, how about forgive them 77 times? Mind-blowing. Like no one in that culture would keep forgiving somebody. Imagine someone offending you 77 times, traumatizing you 77 times. And Jesus says you forgive them 77 seven times. Mind you, Jesus has moral authority to speak on this because if, just to bring, if you're not unaware, he was traumatized. He was nailed on a cross for you and me. He bore a crown of thorns. 
He was traumatized. He was pierced for your transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was traumatized for us. He says, you forgive 77 77 times. Let me give you a few truths about forgiveness I want you to grab hold of because sometimes there can be uh, confusion over forgiveness. Forgiveness, number one, is not forgetfulness. So you forgive someone, doesn't mean you'll forget about it. You may never forget about it. Forgiveness is also saying, ah, it's not that big of a deal. Like, for example, if, if, they, if it was a criminal activity, you were at right to criminally charge them with a, with a crime. Like, that's not like saying I'm not forgiving them. It's the consequence. See, there's no, that's a, it doesn't say there's no consequences. Forgiveness is also not reconciliation. This one I, I, had, I had confused for some time in my life. Because here's what's reality. Sometimes people have offended you so, like, there's been such a great breach of trust, you may never be able to fully reconcile. And can I free somebody up? That is okay. That's okay. That's okay. You don't have to reconcile with that person. Now, we're called to have the ministry of reconciliation. So when God's healed your heart and you're able to, if you're, it's possible, do so. But if you're not, don't feel shame about that. Here's what forgiveness simply is. Forgiveness in the Greek, and you look at the New Testament, it simply means to release them to God. Romans 12, Paul said this. The Lord speaks, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. Here's what you say. God, you are judge. I am not. And we should be glad we're not judged. Come on, somebody. You are, you are the executor of justice, not me. So I release them spiritually to you, God. I'm no longer expecting them to somehow right the wrong. I'm no longer expecting them to reconcile. I'm releasing them fully to you. C.S. Lewis said this, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Do you know that our sin is offensive to God? You have offended God. Our, our sin calls Christ to be traumatized on the cross. And we put that in perspective, it enables us by the power of the Holy Spirit to forgive others when they have offended us. Corey Tinboom is, um, maybe you may know her, she uh, was a Christian who helped protect Jew- Jewish people uh, during the Nazi regime. Uh, her sister uh, was murdered at the hands of a Nazi guard. And she would, after um, that period of time, she would go around to churches and speak about how she had forgiven this guard and forgiven um, those who killed her sister. And one time she was at a church and she gave this talk. And as she got done, she she stepped down from the stage and somebody was walking towards her. This man says, that guard who you just spoke of is me. And I've become a Christian. And I know God has forgiven me, but can I hear that from your lips? That you've forgiven me. She says, in that moment I realized forgiveness is not a feeling, it's an act of the will. She put her hand on his shoulder. And she said, when I put my hand on his shoulder, and I told him that I forgive him, she said, I felt this warmth come down my shoulder, down my arm, through my hands. She believes that was the power of the Holy Spirit. And she said, for the, never before had I experienced the magnitude of God's love as I did in that moment. She's quoted as saying this, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that prisoner was you. Forgiveness, unforgiveness, it's hard to say this way. Unforgiveness is like lighting yourself on fire and hopes the other person burns. 
It only hurts you. So who do you maybe need to forgive in your life? Again, you're not saying forgetting. You're not, you're, not, you're not brushing off to the side like, wasn't that big of a deal? It was a big deal. It was traumatic. But we forgive them. Here's the last and final point. So we, we stay close to God. We guard our heart. Then we find purpose in our pain. In Genesis 40, he is in prison now with the cupbearer and the baker in Pharaoh's prison. And Joseph interprets the cupbearer and the baker's dream. They said they would both have dreams. We have no one to interpret them. And then Joseph says, don't interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. Here's what we see in Joseph's life. He was continually and constantly, throughout the entire time, serving others. Like, you would think he would kind of just kind of, you know, woe is me. Like, I, I've been through it. Like, someone needs to serve me. I don't know about you, but when, anytime I'm ever, like, sick, I'm like a baby. Pray for Christina. Come on. Anybody else? When I'm, like, sick, I'm like, oh, I'm just going to stay in bed all day. Right? I'm like, um, and, but, but here's Joseph. Here he is experiencing trauma after trauma, and he continues to serve other people with the gifts God's given him. Reminds me of Paul in Philippians 2. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but to each other, to each of you, to the interests of others. Mind you, Paul writes this in prison. If you didn't know, prison in and of itself is traumatic. <laughs> he writes it in prison to Christians being persecuted. Consider other people. And it almost seems counterintuitive, right? Uh, there was a study done uh, in 2019 at this cancer center. Um, they were there for being treatment for chronic pain associated with their cancer. And they did a study. They allowed some of the patients to not just wash their own dishes. They had to wash their own dishes after dinner, but also wash the dishes of their center mates. And here's what they found. Through self-report and functional MRI scanning, they actually found that those who washed the dishes of other cancer patients experience a self-reported decrease in their chronic pain. And catch this. On the functional MRI scanning, the part of the brain that registers pain decreased after they started washing their other mates' dishes. So this became a part of their treatment program that a part of your chronic pain management is to serve others at the center. Can I tell you, this is what the scripture is all about. This is why Jesus constantly is saying the greatest is the servant of all. Why? Because he knows when we get our eyes off ourselves to serve other people. So what does it look like for you in your workplace, in your home, here at the church to get your eyes off yourself and say, man, I can serve. Listen, when you help others, you actually begin to heal your pain. The scriptures and the research show it. Here's the end of Joseph's life. Genesis 45. We're coming to a close. Verse 3, Joseph now had given the three tests to his brothers. Now they came back, and Joseph reveals himself. This is 22 years after they sold him to slavery. Into slavery. He says, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one who you sold into Egypt. Now don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been a famine in the land, but the next five years will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me to, ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, catch this, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of Egypt. Do you catch Joseph's language? 
the very men who sold him into slavery. He said, you, you didn't sell me into slavery. God sent me here. 22 years pass. Perspective. Joseph saw purpose in his pain. Now listen, purpose oftentimes may not be revealed overnight. It often comes with time. But Joseph saw that even through, God didn't cause the trauma, but God redeemed the trauma. God didn't cause the pain, but he gave purpose to the pain. To the point that, God, that Joseph's like, God actually sent me here to save you and to save other people. That's what he did through you. Then Genesis 50, at the end of Joseph's life, Joseph's father dies. And his brothers, read this for yourself, his brothers are like, oh shoot, he's going to kill us now. Like, legitimately. They're like, you're going to kill us now. Like, dad's dead. Like, you kept us alive. You didn't want to upset dad. Now we're dead. Verse 20 of Genesis 50. You intended to harm me, Joseph says, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done by the saving of many lives. Profound. Joseph said essentially, was she meant for evil? God worked for good. And here's I'm believing, church. I don't know what kind of trauma you walk through, but I'm believing. Here's what I, I believe. Time does not heal everything, but time with God can heal anything. We see this in the life of Joseph. To the point that he has the strength to reconcile, embrace the ones who sold him into slavery, and said, God sent me here to save you. And he saved them. He saved their lives and their children's lives and their children's children's lives. I'm praying and believing. I don't know what kind of pain you've walked through but that God at some point will reveal the purpose in your pain. That he'll redeem whatever trauma you walk through. You know, when I first started to explore this idea of trauma, um, something happened in my life that I didn't initially realize was traumatic, um, was the death of my father. I was 16 years old, and I um, got news. It was actually... 23 years ago this month, uh, we were told he had terminal cancer, given less than a month to live. My dad was not just my dad, he was my best friend. He was great. I love my dad. Um, but I think in large part what I'm doing today is because of him. He preached the gospel. And um, at the time, 16-year-old Jeremy did not realize, and I would not have described it as traumatic. I went about my life. It was years later talking to some counselors but I realized it was traumatic and it's affected my life and it was years in fact it was probably about 13 years 12 years after his death that I began to see how God was already redeeming what I'd walked through because he passed when I was 16 my dad wasn't there for my graduation he didn't see me marry Christina I knew he would love her. He's never met my children. Um, and there's still moments that I, I miss him a lot. I remember one, one afternoon I was working as a psychologist with uh, middle school students. We had a lunch group, and I was working on an alternative school. And these children were in there, these students were in there because they had either 
been expelled from their uh, regular school where they had committed a felony, a violent felony, and they were uh, sent to the school. Uh, I, I love these students. It was my, one of my favorite jobs as a psychologist. I love working with them. I forget one lunch. I don't even know how it started. But they all started sharing with me about how they didn't have their father in their life. And these hard exterior young men begin to, begin to weep. These young men who'd been labeled a certain way by the school system begin to break down because I'm having a dad. They begin to talk about how their dad won't be there when they graduate high school and won't be there for certain life events. In that moment, God showed me that I could actually empathize to an extent with them because I know the pain of walking and receiving my diploma and not having your dad smile back at you, of standing at the altar of your, during your wedding and not having your dad there. I knew the pain. It was real. I saw in that moment that, the, that what the enemy would have loved to use to harm me, God redeemed it for his good. And here's what I know, church. There is no pain and no trauma that is too significant for God to redeem for good. 